the Epsilon email breach. How concerned should we be? And what does it tell us about privacy and database security? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Nicholas Christian, Associate Director and Faculty Member of the Information Networking Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Nicholas, you've read some of the news reports coming out about this breach, and most of them, of course, have hit the wire today. What are some of your initial thoughts and reactions? My initial thought was, oh, man, here we go again. Um, but then when I uh, looked a little bit more in details uh, into, into what happened, what struck me was the magnitude of the, of the breach uh, that was reported today. This is a very, very large uh, marketing company that has access to very large databases of, um, of email addresses. So I think that what distinguishes this breach from uh, some of the incidents that, that we've seen is, is the magnitude uh, of the number of, of customers that are potentially affected by this. Now, it's been rumored, Nicholas, that Epsilon was actually breached in December. Do you have any knowledge about the legitimacy of that claim? Yeah, so I actually did look a little bit into it, and um, it's actually quite complicated uh, to understand exactly what, what's been going on. It's possible that, indeed, today's breach is a direct byproduct of a breach that happened in December. It's also possible that the two breaches are unrelated. And the reason why we're not sure is that um, these email lists that are uh, shared by different marketing affiliates uh, tend to travel around and be shared by various companies and various uh, marketing entities, and it's not really clear where a leak can come from. So in December, there was definitely a breach uh, which involved a company called Silverpot, I think, um, whether or not the, the breach that we see today uh, is a direct byproduct of this or if those are two separate and unrelated incidents that just happen to, uh, to target the same, uh, the same group of marketing affiliates is unclear. And it's relatively difficult to determine whether this is the case or not because it's completely possible that, let's say that the breach happened in December, it's entirely possible that the people who were behind that didn't do anything with the email addresses that they got in December. Alternatively, it's possible also that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, these are two separate incidents and that uh, this later breach is actually uh, more recent. Now, if it were proven that Epsilon was breached in December and then, of course, breached again, what legal steps could be taken to hold Epsilon accountable? That's... Uh, a very interesting question because um, in the United States we don't have federal laws mandating disclosure of uh, data breaches. A number of United States uh, at the state level have passed such laws. For instance, California uh, has, I think was the first state in, in 2003 or so, to pass a mandatory uh, data breach disclosure law, which means that any time you're uh, storing personal information or private information and it gets leaked, you have to notify your, your customers immediately. Um, so in terms of legal recourse that could be available to, uh, to the affected customers, I would say that because of the magnitude of, of the, uh, 
because of the size of the email databases that, that have been stolen, it's more than likely that some of these customers will be in, in those states that have mandatory data uh, breach disclosure laws. And so if that's the case, they could very uh, well, you know, uh, try to get compensation or actually sue uh, these, uh, these providers if indeed a breach existed and was not disclosed to the, uh, to the customers. Now, in, as, as far as the breach in December is concerned, my understanding uh, is that the breach was uh, made public, but they didn't necessarily notify the customers that were affected by the breach, at least not all of them, and that may be where uh, some, uh, some problems occur. Now, from a higher level, what does this incident tell us about the differing ways that we define and determine what is sensitive when it comes to consumer information? So I've been told through previous interviews that email addresses themselves are not really considered sensitive and therefore are not protected in the same ways that card information, for instance, would be. That's very true. An email address is basically a disposable commodity. You can set up an email account in a couple of minutes. Uh, you can set it up for free. So these are really items that essentially have, by themselves, they have no value. I mean, an email address has absolutely no value by itself. Now, the value that uh, it, it can acquire is when you correlate it with some other information. For instance, if you know my email address, and you know that this is Nicolas Christine's email address, then you're starting to uh, to build some value into uh, into the proposition. What what that means is that those individual pieces of information are not necessarily very valuable, but their collection and the correlations between the different pieces of information may indeed have a lot of value. So let me give you an, a pretty extreme example. If you have somebody's complete web browsing history, their complete uh, online purchase records over the past six months, their email addresses, their phone number, and their name, then you basically can build a very, very uh, accurate marketing profile of that person, and you can definitely monetize that to generate, for instance, targeted advertisements or um, you know, products that, uh, that you can try to sell to this person. So the value of information essentially, when it comes to the digital world, comes from what I would call the correlations between the different pieces of data. A phone number in isolation is not very useful. An email address in isolation is not very useful. A browsing behavior in isolation, if you have no way of tying it back to a specific user, it doesn't have a lot of value itself. But problems start to arise when you can re-identify persons and when you can bind those different uh, pieces of information into a, a single set. So do you feel, Nicholas, that we're perhaps viewing email addresses too lightly? Should they be better guarded? Because they are oftentimes connected with other information that when you get this full picture, as you've noted, could really make consumers vulnerable. Right. So I think that... Um, Email addresses themselves, a good, a good practice to, uh, to, to use, and I, I get you know, the feeling from reading some, uh, some consumer reports that people are moving toward this, is that you, you basically want to have different sets of email addresses for different purposes. So for instance, you're not going to sign up for an online newsletter with your work email address. 
for that, you probably want to use throwaway email addresses. You don't sign up for sweepstakes with your uh, person with the personal email address that you use for, say, filing your tax returns. So there are different levels of value for email addresses. So if we take a step back and we think about what this perhaps could lead to, this compromise with all of this information from a phishing perspective, how bad could this get? The fraudsters have names, they have email addresses, and they have company affiliations, as you've noted. How targeted could these attacks be? So in theory, they could become very targeted because uh, of the amount of information that people have. It's not that much, uh, all, all other things being considered, because, for instance, they do not necessarily know which bank you've uh, subscribed to. However, what's interesting is that uh, part of these uh, marketing lists that were stolen had some banks as their customers. So, for instance, uh, they can take a guess that some of those email addresses belong to people who have registered some service of some sort with, say, Citigroup, which I think was one of the companies that was, uh, that was reported to be, uh, uh, to be targeted by this. So it could, in theory, become fairly uh, targeted and fairly sophisticated. For instance, if you know, I got an email saying, Dear Nicholas Christine, your Citigroup account got compromised, uh, something that you know, uses my actual name, um, uses my actual affiliation, saying something like, from Carnegie Mellon University and so forth, uh, then a lot of people would, uh, would potentially fall for that. But the saving grace, if I, if I can uh, put it that way, is that doing targeted email phishing attacks is relatively time-consuming. Uh, so attackers, in theory, could do that, but it's going to take them a lot of time to just try to sift through those different uh, databases and build something that is quite convincing. It's not impossible, and they may actually try to do it, but um, it would be definitely a lot harder than the common tactic, which is to, just to send a bunch of spam, including phishing, including you know, uh, advertisements for Viagra and, and things like that, to the very uh, large set of email addresses that they have. And so what should banks and retailers be doing in the wake of this breach? You've noted that consumers should be mindful not to respond to emails, but how can banks and retailers get those messages out to their customers, and how can they restore faith in their customers, especially where email correspondence is concerned? So there are two things that uh, they can do. The first thing is that I think that they have to come clean, and I, I, I really mean that in terms of, who they are sharing data with. Uh, a lot of people that got this notification that there was an epsilon uh, data breach were you know, completely dumbfounded. They, they don't know what epsilon is, they don't know who they are, and they have no idea why they should be concerned. And the reason is epsilon is basically a marketing uh, aggregator. They are aggregating data from various sources, from their various customers, and that's what got leaked. Um, so people usually do not know what's going on behind the scenes and the prevailing wisdom is that well you know they don't really care but they do care when something like that happens so i think that it would be uh, first of all very important for all of those organizations be they online retailers be the banks to just you know inform clients inform their customers about precisely what they are doing with their data instead of saying we may share it or we may not share it with some of our affiliates 
tell us who these affiliates are. Tell us which, which company, which data aggregator you're using. Um, so that's the first thing, and that's going to be pretty hard to, uh, to actually change the, uh, the, the, the marketing culture of those, uh, of those retailers. The second thing that uh, banks uh, in particular could and, and, and uh, probably uh, should do is just to uh, clean up their act also a little bit from an information technology standpoint. So what I mean by that is that it, it's quite um, amusing to see sometimes some of the correspondence that the banks send you. Uh, some of the actual legitimate emails that I receive from my banks um, or from my uh, uh, mortgage company really look like phishing attacks. And the reason is they, for instance, use, uh, they, for instance, outsource uh, delivery of those emails to uh, third-party groups that are not emailing from the same domain. So, for instance, uh, you are supposed to receive an email, say, from Citibank, and that's coming from a server that has Citibank in the name but is not really at Citibank.com, and that looks very suspicious. I think it's high time that, you know, banks and, um, and, and those other companies actually start doing the right thing, which is to actually um, put in practice the type of stuff that they've been preaching. You know, they tell you, please be careful when uh, you are not sure that this is coming from your bank. Please do not reply to those emails. Please do not pay attention to them. And then they just go ahead and do this exact thing, which is to send uh, email addresses from accounts that are a priori not really related to the bank itself. And by doing so, they are further eroding the, the confidence of their consumers. We want to know where the data is going, and we want to know which data is going where, and also trying to adopt those best practices that um, both academia and industry have been uh, clamoring for, for for years. And it's very interesting to see that they're not being put in practice, perhaps due to economic concerns, due to economic constraints. It's, it's a lot cheaper in some cases to just outsource distribution of your um, of your emails to uh, a third-party company that is specializing in that, rather than doing it the right way and having the bank directly contact their, cons their customers. And Nicholas, I was going to ask you for some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience, and it sounds like you've probably done that. Just coming back to best practices and more transparency. That's pretty much what I would uh, recommend at, uh, at this point. And people also have to realize that uh, Privacy online is something that is extremely hard to maintain, and they have to be mindful of this. And I think that perhaps the younger generation knows this a little bit better than the older generation, but the expectations, unfortunately, at this stage have to be fairly low. And um, this, is, this is problematic. This is something that we, as a society, that we ought to fix, I think. But at this point, I, I, anytime I go online, I have very low expectations about the, the type of uh, privacy that I can get from, uh, from those online retailers. And I think that consumers should be very much on the defensive. So use disposable email addresses. If you're concerned about the type of information that you can uh, reveal online, well, don't reveal anything. Make up you know, phone numbers. 000-000 is usually accepted when um, when a marketing affiliate is asking you for your phone number, just use those tactics. I want to thank you again for your time today, Nicholas. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Nicholas Christian of Carnegie Mellon University. For Information Security Media Group, 
I'm Tracy Kitten.